You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. We now know more about the governor's plan for the pre-travel testing program for uh, Hawaii's incoming travelers, which starts next Thursday. Governor Ige emphasized that protecting public health and bringing the coronavirus under control is crucial to reviving the economy and strengthening Hawaii's community. He rolled out details which included limited use of a second test. This is the biggest single effort since the pandemic began to begin to revive our economy. We don't expect a rush of travelers next week. Most of the airlines have announced that they will not increase their flight schedules until November 1st, and hotels are reopening gradually through the month of December. Nonetheless, all of the partners who are involved with this pre-travel testing program, government, airlines, private sector, hospitality industry and other businesses are using the October 15th date to focus our efforts on ensuring the health and safety of our community, improving and implementing measures and operational changes to improve testing, contact tracing capabilities and other measures to ensure that we can bring Trans-Pacific travelers back to the islands in a safe way that does not put our community health at risk. You know, we talked to the Hotel Workers Union this morning. Local 5 leader Eric Gill has been asking that the union sit at the table for talks about reopening. Absent of that, he's asked hoteliers to spell out protocols and protections for union members as they are called back to work. The union estimates it has about 500 of its more than 11,000 members back on the job. It's also asking for help from the city council to support its efforts to require hotels to post their safety protocols. There were a couple of bills before council that apparently have advanced through the first hearing and go to the executive matters committee. Both of them are of interest to us. We're trying to get government agencies to weigh in in a positive way for workers in this whole scene. And so the Bill 80 is something that we very much are interested in, primarily actually for people who are not in our union. Bill 80 is about employers making a commitment to bring workers back as opposed to firing them and bringing somebody else back or bringing somebody else back uh, as a subcontractor or making long-term workers reapply and start as new workers, you know, uh, thereby shedding, you know, benefits and all that. And so, you know, the it seems to me that this is something that the community should require, you know, that employers actually take people back when they get back into business and, and don't just leave them on the trash heap after years of service. So this is something that we're very interested in uh, that the council is passing forward. There's another measure there that addresses the question of the arriving visitors and their testing, whether that be a single test, which is... The, you know, the current announcement or pronouncement or a confirmatory second test, and how is that to be done? So those are both things of interest to us. What are your concerns at this point, knowing that this is just a week away? Well, the concern is that the state doesn't have a workable plan to handle a large number of incoming tourists in a safe way. And, uh, you know, there's various elements that are problematic here. You know, and, and the biggest one and one of the most important ones is that the quarantine can't be effectively enforced or it isn't being effectively enforced. People don't believe it can be, I think. And so without the quarantine, there's little incentive or push to induce arriving 
visitors to take the test. And of course, without the quarantine, there's no way to be ensured that any arriving visitor who is positive and contagious is contained and isolated. And so, you know, there's so the incoming testing and the quarantine problem is is, a, is certainly a basic problem. From our point of view, at least as significant a problem, if not more, is that hotels haven't adopted or disclosed how they are planning to keep the workforce safe. So obviously an infection can come in through, through the back door, through the employee's entrance as well, and that that has not been well handled yet by our industry. There's not sufficient protections against an outbreak. When there is an outbreak, there aren't sufficient measures in place to deal with it. All summer long, you have been uh, approaching the hotels to try and get some agreement on what protocols are in place to protect the workers. You have one with Kahala Resort. Talk about that. Well, what Kahala has done is, you know, I mean, first of all, I don't think there's any such thing as uh, exhaustive list of here's everything you got to do because first of all it changes over time uh as as events go on but also new things come up that need to be dealt with what we have is at at kahala is a process where management and the workers are working together to implement safety measures at the department levels so kahala basically came to workers and to the union with its plan you know, and it basically took its standard operating procedures that have been in place for years and added to them. And we discussed those additions and made uh, appropriate amendments after discussion. And, it, you know, and, and the workers and managers are applying them into the exact uh, uh, conditions in the shop. You know, so to me, that's what's necessary if we're going to be safe. And nothing can be 100% safe, but what you want is you want the people who have the biggest interest in safety to be in charge of that. And what Demet Kahala is empower, in essence, workers and department-level managers to address those issues creatively together. And I think, you know, that's the best guarantee that you have a good result. Why haven't Uh, the other properties uh, bought into this idea? Well, I think I think there's two reasons. You know, the the reason, first of all, the big corporations. You know, Kala is not a Marriott or a Hilton or a Hyatt, and it's not owned by a big private equity concern or a big REIT like 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 most of our other hotels. And so, for the owner there and the um, managers have not joined the cabal, if you will, the across the country in, in every city, uh, these corporate entities that manage hotels have taken the position they don't have to bargain and will not bargain with the union on this question. And therefore, they haven't, you know, they, they in general have not produced, uh, as Kahala has, the detailed operating procedures that they intend to, to do. Now, there's several reasons for this. One, you know, they, they have a legal argument that they don't have an obligation to bargain. But I think in a broader sense, they don't want to be held to their own standards. In other words, they all say that they have these extensive standards, you know, you know, with all these people that, you know, that, that a whole list of people they consulted with. The list doesn't include workers or anybody who's actually going to be affected by it, but they have Johns Hopkins and Mayo Clinic and all this. Uh, but the problem is that those standards don't get followed. So, you know, a, a, list, a list of safety rules that isn't posted, that nobody knows what it is, can't be enforced and workers can't know if it's being followed or not 
And, of course, that's what the company doesn't want. They don't want to have to be held accountable to follow their own standards, and therefore they are not wishing to issue them. Some properties aren't opening until, what, November? December, January. So we've got different start dates for the different properties. You folks went out and did uh, an inspection just to see, you know, who's got plexiglass, who's got hand sanitizer. Yeah, most of the most of the hotels have waited. In fairness to the hotel, they're not making any money. Nobody's staying there. They're losing money. The owners are paying money in taxes and utilities and so on uh, without any money coming in. So they're hesitant to put the money into cleaning up the place and getting everything ready until they know they're going to do that which is why they've been so anxious to have a date out of the governor so that they can time these things. So, you know, some hotels that are planning to open are starting to bring workers back, and that's fine. We want to go back to work, but obviously we also want to have a discussion about safety, and some of the hotels that are planning to open have been dodging that question. You know, so, of course, it's a concern to us because workers not knowing in detail what their safety measures should be according to the company. I mean, even according to the company's own policies are understandably nervous about returning to work. And I think it's most of the members are not, you know, they're not saying, oh, I don't want to get sick. Most of the members that are concerned are concerned for their parents or young children or people in their families. They don't want to bring anything home and spread it into their families and thereby into the community. And and of course, this is a major concern, you know. And of course, also, you know, those those hotels that are recalling people that were laid off are usually recalling them in order of seniority, and that means the older workers go back first. And those are the ones uh, who are most individually, personally at risk. So it's just um, it's a terrible situation for workers to have to go back to work in the middle of a pandemic without clear assurances that, you know, clear and credible assurances that their safety will be adequately attended to. You are asking that the hotel partner <clears throat> the tests for the COVID tests? Absolutely. You know, I mean, there's so much attention on testing arriving visitors and no attention at all on testing workers. And in fact, most of the corporate hotels have taken the position, you know, to me directly and to others across the country that they, they're not going to do tests. And they're not going to pay for tests. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's easy to see why they, you know, don't want to do it because the testing is not a trivial expense at all. Um, and until there is a much cheaper test, most of the employers are not going to test their workers. So only a few are, uh, you know, most of these uh, companies that are calling people back are not testing workers prior to, you know, upon their return. And there's no plan anywhere that I know that um, will test workers on a regular basis thereafter. And so what you have is you have all this attention to the front door, making sure that arriving you know, visitors don't bring COVID in. But COVID's already in and around, and it's around in our communities. And most of the outbreaks have been community transmission. So the notion that we can just pay attention to the front door and ignore the back door is, you know, it's just epidemiologically foolish. And um, it's driven, of course, by money, like most other things that go wrong. Uh, but we're in that situation now where uh, where the government really does need to 
set some standards since the industry has not been good about setting common standards and informing people about them and you know discussing them when they need discussion and amending them as as needed to you know, to suit the situation how do you propose dealing with the backdoor issues i mean should that be the hotel's responsibility yeah i mean ultimately it is you know the problem is that hotels not a trivial concern you know for kahala for example if they were to bring everybody back and test them every week that'd be 50 grand a week according to you know some of the current costing of the uh, the test and so the cost of the test is a problem and the and the amount of tests is still a problem after six months. The government has still not solved this problem. So the state only has a certain amount of tests. And if they're going to test, but you know, do the tests they need in the schools and the universities and, you know, how much is left over for, for workers or even visitors. And so, you know, they're, they're struggling with these real issues. And we can all agree that they should have been solved before now, but they weren't. And so now we have... A situation where there's still not enough tests to go around, and we're talking about bringing thousands of people in, and it's a real problem. When do you think your workers will start to be called back, or have they already been? Well, there's a few hotels that have that are planning to open in October, and therefore they're starting to call people back in. And so we will, you know, here we are having six months wanted to be engaged and talk about the safety and the training and make sure that everything's set. Now, having blown that six months, now they're starting without having done any of that. So here we are, you know, Hyatt's going to open, and we still haven't seen anything from them. So it's not very clear what they're going to train workers on, how they're going to train them, you know, what procedures they're going to be instituting and, and how those will be implemented. And so, you know, now we all have to scramble this is what I was worried about. You know, we had six months to talk this thing through, and now we don't have any time to talk it through. And so mistakes are going to be made. And it's unfortunate for everyone, but that's the situation we're in. You know, what's happened here is uh, the governor has attempted to get a consensus on our industry in tourism on how to do this and has been disappointed that the industry has not been able to come to a consensus even on the management side much less address the issues that we're raising and mm -hmm. so you know on the other hand he's under tremendous pressure to open the hotels and, and other businesses for the obvious economic reasons that we all can appreciate right people need to work and so so once again the the, the governor and the the government is walking down this this thin line and it's easy to fall off on one way or the other we think that the government needs to put in appropriate measures to ensure that things are at least dealt with. And so we think the government should be requiring hotels and other businesses to be able to post so people can see what their safety measures are. And there should be measures that people can step up and, and demand that those things be followed. And that was part of a conversation we had with Eric Gill, head of Local 5. We plan to talk to hoteliers next week.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, offering reconnections to the art, courtyards, and the museum community. Open Thursdays to Sundays with new evening hours. HonoluluMuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Kate Marion Child, the author of Secrets of the Oak Woodlands. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the intimate lives of wild plants and animals. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. In today's quiz, we're looking at a champion surfer born in Kailua. He's a cousin of entertainer Don Ho and the brother of fellow pro surfer Michael Ho. No stranger to film, Derek Ho's distinct style of surfing has been featured in over 50 surfing movies, including Wave Warriors, Aloha Bulls, and Side B. In 1983, he placed third in the Pipeline Masters competition and went on to finish the pro tour circuit ranked 30th. In the following years, Ho began climbing the ranks and eventually finished first overall at the end of the 1993 Pro Tour. He was 5'4 and 29 years old when he won, which made him the smallest as well as the oldest men's Pro Tour winner at the time. Although Ho was considered old when he won the World Championship of Surfing in 1993, he was very young when he first took up the sport. For today's quiz, we want you to tell us how old World Champion Derek Ho was when he first began surfing. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app at locationshawaii.com. You know, it was almost seven years ago that thousands of gallons of fuel leaked from a massive military fuel tank facility at Red Hill. The Navy has asked the University of Hawaii College of Engineering to help find a solution to prevent the tanks from leaking. There are 20 underground tanks situated over our drinking water aquifer. We talked to Captain Gordy Meyer, who has just taken over for Captain Mark DeLeo, who retired this summer. We also talked to Brendan Morioka, the new UH Dean of Engineering. Morioka previously worked at Hawaiian Electric. He served as Deputy Director for the Rail Project and was uh, the state's Transportation Director. 
First, we hear from Captain Meyer about the status of the monitoring wells and the partnership with UH. As a commanding officer of Naval Facilities Engineering Command OI, I've got a broad scope in Red Hill as part of that. And so part of our goals for uh, this year for Red Hill are obviously completing those four additional monitoring wells, as well as looking further into the ability to permanently install tank tightness equipment. Uh, as you know, we currently test uh, twice a year twice as more than required by regulation, but uh, we want to go even a step further to, to ensure that uh, tank tightness and look at if we can't install those permanently. Now, at the beginning of the year, you've refilled tank number five, the leaky tank, and all the tests indicated that there were no issues with that. That's correct. We did some significant uh, efforts to ensure that tank was refilled appropriately, as we do with every tank that we refill, and uh, went without any problems, and we're happy to report that tank is operating and uh, very secure and safe. Now, I, I know at the time you folks started filling that tank, and then we got word about this pandemic, and, uh, you know, I saw the order where, you know, everybody just had to to uh, make sure that we were in a state of readiness because we weren't sure what to expect with this crisis. That's correct. And so uh, even with the crisis, you know, we've maintained uh, the safety and security of the Red Hill operations. And, you know, that's one great thing about Red Hill is it's kind of the unknown of the pandemic and what's happening is Red Hill provides not only a strategic resource for the entire nation our, in our defense, but it also helps the, the state of Hawaii in a time of need that we can support, you know, the airport, uh, the electric company, and any other, uh, many other locations across the island in, in times of need. And Brennan Morioka, you know, you're no stranger to our listeners. Folks may not know about your engineering background. Uh, so, so talk about how you're getting involved with this project. Thanks, Catherine. Well, so, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm really excited about this opportunity and the partnership that the University of Hawaii has with uh, the Navy in helping to evaluate a very important and significant project here in Hawaii, and that's the, obviously the Red Hill fuel uh, tank facility. And so the, the university has been engaged by the Navy to help in providing an independent assessment on a number of different things. So initially, we will be looking at some of the, the current data that is available on the condition of the tanks. And we'll be also looking at some of their clean and inspection and repair program operations just to kind of see where they are and the types of standards that they're looking to do. And then also taking all of that and evaluating, are there, is there room for improvement? Is there new technologies and innovations that the university can help identify for uh, assisting the Navy in going forward? How can they do some of their inspections uh, quicker, cheaper, and also more accurately. And so we are looking at some of those techniques that is, is currently available, and we're going to be testing it out on the material of the, the existing tanks, but also looking at other kinds of operations. You know, like right, right now their inspection process is very labor-intensive. they got to set up all kinds of scaffolds and hand-utilize their equipment along every inch of the, the, the insides of the tanks, whereas, you know, maybe use of some of these modern technologies like drones or, or crawling equipment where it can be less labor-intensive, but at the same time using technology to be more accurate in characterizing the, the state of the, uh, the fuel tanks. And so that's where we, you know, we're really excited to be a part of trying to figure out, you know, where the Navy is and how we can help them improve. Now, I was fortunate enough to be able to go into one of those tanks. I'm sure you have 
now of what was your reaction when I think for both of you when you first saw those tanks? <laughs> well, for me, it was it was amazing. I mean, it's such a you don't really unless you are actually in the tank itself, you don't have a, a true sense of the size of these tanks and you know and there's there's it's not just one or two there there's multiple uh tanks up and down that ridge and so it is it was number one an amazing engineering feat to begin with uh which is why it has the American Society of Civil Engineering's designation uh of of being uh, you know one of those historic uh, engineering feats but it, it's it's just an amazing facility, and we can see why the Navy put so much effort and time into making sure that they take their time and in doing their inspection and and repairs correctly, because it is it is such a, a, a important facility for not just our state but the nation. And Captain Mar, what was your reaction when you first saw the tanks? It was uh, very similar. As an engineer, uh, I was very impressed with, with what was done 70, 80 years ago on what was accomplished. But since that time, you know, we've not re- remained static in uh, those tanks, and we've continually upgraded and improved items. And so very impressive to see that and proud to be part of that as we continue to work to uh, modernize and improve the, the tanks uh, that are there. Brendan, you were here when tank number five leaked, you know, so you recall the history of that and the concern that the community has about our drinking water right. because, you right. know, that's a, a vital resource that we have. Being a resident here and knowing the importance of the location of these fuel tanks over the Pearl Harbor Aquifer and the significance of the Pearl Harbor Aquifer that feeds the majority of us with our water supply every single day, you know, it's making sure that there is adequate oversight of these fuel tanks and looking at the operations that the Navy does in their repair and maintenance programs is very important. And so that's why I think that's why the Navy reached out to the university and asked us to help partner with them so that there can be a level of independent evaluation. And, and we're going to let the science speak to the result. We're excited to be able to also not just look at what is currently there, but also how can we as a university help and benefit the entire community by looking at new techniques, new technologies, and innovation on monitoring, inspecting, and even doing repairs differently and better. And so I think the improvements are definitely going to be on coming in the future, and, and we're really excited to be a part of that because ensuring the safety of of that facility is of extreme importance to all of us. Talk about the drone technology and and some of the other high-tech systems that you'll be employing as you study you know, how best or how reliable these tanks are. So drone technology is is rapidly improving, and our ability to not just fly the drones in very difficult situations or environments, but also the kinds of equipment and technology that we can put on the drones, you know, so that we can have much more higher accuracy in detecting the condition or the state of the steel or the concrete in and around the tanks is becoming very important. And so we're going to be testing out some of the different methods using our drones, whether it's using infrared thermograph technologies where we look at heating the surfaces so that we can see the thickness or find any defects. It's, you know, it's very much like, like lighting up your, um, your uh, stovetop 
and you can see the the surface on these new uh, stoves you know get red and start heating up and so just being able to be use some of our technologies and to detect and measure accurately measure the thickness of the steel is going to be very important because you know normally on on regular water tanks that you see outside or any kind of fuel tanks that you see outside you can do visual in- inspections both inside and outside but the difficulties here with these fuel tanks is you can only access it from the inside so being able to understand what is going on throughout the thick the entire thickness of the steel and doing it only from one side is going to be is, is very important to the accuracy of the data and the integrity of the data and that's some of the the innovation that we're working on with the navy right now so this infrared thermography uh, that you'll be using uh, you know i mean how do you heat up the metal. There's a number of different ways that you can. So that's why we're, we're going to be also experimenting and seeing how the actual material, the steel material, responds to the different ways that we can heat it up so that we can see you know, how accurate we can get some readings. So we're, we're going to be testing different ways of, or different heating methods as a part of this project. So do you actually take samples of the tank of the steel out? Eventually we will be working on actual coupons that are from the tank itself. The, the Navy does it as a part of their normal testing program when they need to make repairs and then they'll, they'll take a sample and then they'll make a repair to that area and so we will use some of those sample coupons to do actual tests in our lab before we start doing uh, some actual field testing out in the fuel tanks themselves. So there, there, are, there are some fuel samples that are out there that have been taken from previous tanks and, and we'll be starting some of the initial work on, on those and then as we start to get additional samples, you know, we'll continue to broaden our efforts until we ultimately get into the actual fuel tanks themselves. And uh, Captain Mark, can you talk about the time frame uh, under which you know we'll be advancing you know these technologies and, and uh, inspecting these tanks? We currently have our ongoing clean inspect and repair process, and with the technologies that we just heard about, that's going to be going over the next year and potentially longer, depending on on what is what is needed and how long the university needs to uh, complete their research and their efforts. And we're very excited to see what new things they may be able to come up with. And so we are completely supportive of anything that the university needs to help uh, progress this along. So our initial uh, agreement and research with the University of Hawaii is for August of next year, but uh, the specific details of the timeline on when uh, university expects to complete each uh, each area, I I would defer to to the university itself. Uh, Brennan? Our tasks are fairly varied. I mean, it, it goes from evaluating existing data, uh, and existing samples from the, from the fuel tanks, all the way to looking at and investigating some of the techniques like using the drones and the different kinds of sensing technologies or imaging, thermal imaging, to do some of the evaluation, and as well as looking at some of the groundwater issues and tracking you know, what's happening in the groundwater so that we can develop a, a baseline going forward as well. And so some of these are going are, are gonna to span over the course of a few years, but we do have certain types of deliverables over the course of you know, the next year or the next two years, and that's going to range from having some recommendations on on what what we seem to find in terms of some of the existing data, some of the existing methods of the clean inspect and repair programs, and then we'll come up with recommendations as we go on what other kinds of things that we should be studying to in order for us to make 
appropriate recommendations in the future. And and we may we may ultimately come up with new technologies that or methods that don't currently exist because we're gonna you know we're gonna start learning about some of these different challenges as we go because when you get into the tanks, you know I mean it's it's very almost claustrophobic in there, and so you know sometimes if we start using drones or crawlers and we look start looking at automated technologies, communication with those pieces of equipment become challenging. So, you know, we may have to invent some things as we go. And we're also looking at both, you know, because right now in order for the, the Navy to do their inspection and repairs, they, they need to drain the tanks. But we're going to be looking at technologies where we can do some of this remote sensing and imaging both dry and full or un, you know underwater so you know that that would also allow much more flexibility in terms of their clean inspect and repair program because they could look at doing their inspection program very differently than the way that they current currently do because right now you can't inspect it while there's fuel inside the fuel tank and I'm trying to recall now, Captain Meyer, uh, like how many tanks do you have empty at any given time, you know, because of repairs, regular maintenance? So uh, we typically have several tanks empty for the clean inspect repair process. Currently, we have three that are empty and working on a fourth one to be empty. But as we go along, we obviously would love to decrease that number to keep more tanks in operation to support our fuel demand. Getting back to the monitoring wells, what's the progress on those four uh, that you're putting in? So the four wells that we are putting in this year, one is under construction currently, and we hope to complete uh, that soon. And we're also working on the permits for the other wells. And so obviously we just don't drill uh, wells on our own. We work with our Bureau of Water Supply to ensure that we do it appropriately and at the right locations in the right way. And so one of the next steps is to ensure we get the appropriate permits uh, from the Bureau of Water Supply. Once we get those, we can move forward with the remainder, remainder wells uh, for this year. That was part of a conversation we had with Navy Captain Gordy Meyer and UH Engineering Dean Brennan Morioka. The military has asked the university to help uh, in finding solutions to prevent any future spills from the Red Hill underground fuel tank from contaminating our drinking water. The Navy has posted its quarterly update uh, online and says a Red Hill Advisory Committee meeting will be held at the end of the month. The military has pushed back on critics' calls to relocate the tanks. For links, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. It's now time for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Reporter Christina Jedra has a follow-up to a story about the Honolulu Police Department and its rate of crime solving. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Good to be here. Yeah, so you sort of got some answers to a previous story that you wrote about. How did that come about? Yes and no. For a little background, uh, the FBI published some numbers last week showing that the Honolulu Police Department has a very low clearance rate. That's the rate at which they are solving crimes out of the total number of crimes reported in particular categories. According to those numbers from the FBI, which originally come from HPD, the department solved only only 25% of violent crimes in 2019 and about 5% of property crimes. 
Um, at a police commission meeting yesterday, though, Chief Susan Ballard said that that data is incorrect. Um, she did not say what she believes the clearance rates actually are, um, and none of the commissioners asked. But she said it's you know actually better than than the FBI numbers would have us conclude. And you told me last time that you had put in the request to talk to Chief Ballard, but she said she wanted to wait till those other stats came out. That's right. So ordinarily, the Attorney General's office publishes an annual crime in Hawaii report. Um, They haven't put out a report on Honolulu's numbers since 2017 data was published. Um, And so the FBI data was the best we had to work with to determine what the the rates were for 2018 and 2019. So um, the chief has declined to be interviewed um, now twice, saying that they're waiting for the AG's report to come out. Uh, presumably, I guess, with different numbers than the FBI is offering. Now, it's interesting because uh, former AG Doug Chin now sits on the commission. Right, and he used to put out these uh, reports. And even if you look out the the AG's reports going up to 2017, if you know the, the department finds that data reliable, the clearance rate has been going down for years. So the chief hasn't offered really an explanation for that. Um, but uh, she did offer several reasons at the commission meeting yesterday. Um, one thing she pointed out was that the federal definitions for crimes don't always match what HPD uh, has for their criminal definitions. It's like putting a square peg in a round hole, she said. Um, she also cited potential faulty record keeping at HPD. She said, quote, garbage in, garbage out. If you put in, you know, numbers with mistakes, uh, you'll get faulty conclusions. And she also said that HPD gives a disc to the FBI and the AG and, quote, we don't know what's on it. Um, she said they kind of hand over the data without knowing what's on the disc and they they don't know how the FBI makes its conclusions at the end of the day. Um, so th- I'm not quite sure what to make of, of any of that. Um, she didn't share you know, the numbers she thinks are accurate. Well, she did um, tell the commission, though, though, that they have made efforts to, what, improve their computer system, your reporting system? Yeah, so she said even though the numbers um, that the FBI is reporting are wrong, they're still taking steps to improve the clearance rate at the department. Um, You know, one big thing that she said is she's going to hold her lieutenants more accountable for their numbers and make sure that, they're keeping an eye on it and trying to, to close cases and make arrests. And uh, now I know, uh, was it Mike Broderick? Um, he was a courts administrator before, uh, you know, so he's got some knowledge of, you know, the uh, law enforcement and the judiciary. So what did he have to say about this? Um, he said that he was relieved to know that the numbers were wrong. Um, But uh, he did hope that the department could offer some more information on a regular basis to the commission. Um, According to current and former members of the commission, they haven't been briefed on the clearance rate for potentially years. So um, Broderick was hoping the chief could could update them on a regular basis. Um, She said she's not sure if she'll be able to do that. Um, The Crime in Hawaii reports are typically the, the annual show of transparency for the clearance rate, and we don't know when that will be coming out. Okay, all very curious, but uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see when those numbers do come out, you know, what the chief uh, has to say about uh, about the about the statistics, you know, going forward. Yeah, I look forward to asking her. All right, okay, and then we'll, we'll come back and you, you have to do another story. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds <laughs> Thanks. good. Thanks so much, Christina. Thanks for having me.
That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. To read coverage on this issue, head to civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from T. Oki Trading, featuring HDC water purification systems for pools, spas, and the whole home. Serving Hawaii for 40 years. Learn more at tokitrading.com. I'm Marco Werman. On the world, we look for outside perspectives. I'm worried for the African-Americans in America right now. I'm scared for them. I mean, there are very few Nigerians who don't have family in the U.S. We expect better. Looking at the U.S. from beyond our borders, it's the world. Starting this afternoon at 1. In this morning's Backyard Quiz, we remember the late world champion surfer Derek Ho, who died this summer. Born in Kailua, Derek Ho is a cousin of singer Don Ho, as well as the brother of fellow pro surfer Michael Ho. Possessing a unique style of surfing, Derek Ho had been featured in over 50 surfing movies, including Wave Warriors, Aloha Bowls, and Shockwaves. In 1983, he placed third in the Pipeline Masters competition and went on to finish the pro tour circuit in 30th place. In the following years, though, he began climbing the ranks and eventually finished first overall at the end of the 1993 Pro Tour. He was 5 foot 4 inches tall and 29 years old at the time, which made him the smallest and the oldest men's Pro Tour winner at the time. Although Ho was considered old when he won the World Championship of Surfing in 1993, he was very young when he first stepped onto a surfboard to learn the art of wave riding. For today's quiz, we were wondering if you could tell us how old world champion Derek Ho was when he first began surfing. And the answer, three years old. But uh, no one got that answer today, so no winners. That's today's quiz. If you have a trivia idea to stump our listeners, send it to e- send an email to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Social distancing, washing hands, wearing masks, all important information for everyone, especially children during the COVID-19 pandemic. To get this message across to Keiki, local author Beverly De Silva has written a new book called Six Feet Together. Take a listen. Six Feet Together. How far is six feet apart? Too far to hold hands, too far to give hugs, too wide to share snacks, or ride piggyback. The longer we have to stay six feet apart, the farther it seems, the heavier the heart. But it's not too far to share a laugh. It's not too far to trade a smile. It's not too wide to make a wish, wave hello, or blow a kiss. Six feet is the distance that keeps us safe. It's the distance that shows we care about family and friends everywhere. And the caring doesn't stop there. Always remember to wash your hands, just like your parents taught you. Wash your palms, wash the backs, and between each finger, too. Soap and water, take your time. Sing happy birthday twice. 
pretend there's cake and presents. Wouldn't that be nice? Always remember to wear a mask every time you leave your house. Make sure it covers your nose and make sure it covers your mouth. Wearing a mask helps keep others safe in case we aren't well and don't know it. Printed or plain, a mask shows you care about family and friends everywhere. Wearing masks, washing hands, and keeping six feet apart. We do these things so we can get back to holding hands, giving hugs, and trading tasty snacks. Instead of six feet apart, think of it as six feet together. We are never really that far apart when we have lots of love in our hearts. Oh, isn't that sweet? You know, De Silva spoke with the Conversations producer, Jason Ubai, about why she wrote the book. Well, this was back in April. And so, you know, the, the lockdown had started. I was, like everyone else, watching a, a lot of news about it. There was a story about uh, a healthcare worker who, and this was uh, somewhere on the mainland, she had um, was talking about how hard it was to come home from work and, you know, not being able to touch your kids. And they have to, you know, stay on the other side of a wall or a plastic wrap. And it was hard to explain to, you know, a young child why you, you can't just give anyone a hug like you're used to. So that was in my head. And at the same time, there was, uh, there's a local boutique, Eden and Love, one of my favorite shops. They were doing campaigns using a, a phrase that's you know been used elsewhere six feet together in relation to social distancing and COVID-19 but the way they were presenting it was just so positive and you know, it wasn't about selling stuff it was just about a good message to keep people feeling as positive as possible and you know, here's something you can do that will help all of us so I had those two thoughts in my head and I thought I feel like I could, you know, write something that would be would help parents or help adults explain to kids what six feet apart means and why it's important. So it turned into a poem, and um, I sent it over to Eden and Love, and they ended up using it in their store window when they were able to reopen, and it's probably still there if you go over to their South Shore Market location. And then I decided to broaden it, take it a bit further, and Mutual Publishing was interested in the book. And so that's, that's how it came to be. Now, the book will be published in October, and you got the idea in April. Were you concerned that, that this would no, no longer be an issue? I know <laughs> we're, we're able to look in hindsight, but I know a I lot know. of things have changed, and we were very hopeful back in the spring. Uh, yeah. were, were that, would, was that a concern you know, for you? <laughs> it would be nice if I had to choose, you know, between the the book coming to life and not needing it. You know, it would be great if we really didn't need it. But uh, in terms of publishing, you know, this is a pretty fast track to get something into print. But I, I do think that whether it's COVID-19 or you know the next pandemic, sadly, because there there will be there will be another another challenge, another healthcare challenge. I think the message, you know, this is our new normal, but really it's going to be somewhat permanent. I mean, the things that we're doing, washing your hands, um, 
keeping your distance. If you're not well, we should have always been doing that anyway, and so we should continue to do it. So that part of it, I think the message will be evergreen, and that's the best thing to say about it, but it, the message will still hold, you know, the end of this year, next year, into the future. I think, you know, sadly, the new normal is, it truly is the new normal. Why focus this book on children and um, making sure that they get this messaging? I think, you know, I was thinking about kids going back to school, back to their daycares, or even just, you know, being at home with, um, with whoever their caregivers are. And I think it's something they can understand when you explain it once, but you probably have to explain it in different ways and, and repeat it. So sometimes, you know, a message that's in a picture book, I think it's more entertaining, it's easier to retain, and also for the person who's reading the story and giving the instruction, I think that makes it a little bit easier to deliver the message. And also, as you, as you say it, you're um, repeating it for yourself. Because, you know, we all need to be reminded, right, to, to wear the mask and wash our hands and really think about not just how we're keeping ourselves safe, but how we're keeping everybody around us safe. Anything else you wanted to add? I, you know, I, I do hope that it will help parents and teachers, especially as, you know, we try to figure out how kids will go back to school, particularly the, the younger children, the, the younger grades. So I hope that'll be helpful. I've had really good response from people, um, not only friends and family, but, um, you know, total strangers who now are interested and are buying the book. So. I think the message translates into um, across cultures and into you know any area. Everybody seems to understand the message as soon as I see the title, so that's a good thing. The book Six Feet Together was illustrated by Cat Uno. It is currently available as an ebook, and the print edition will be released on October fifteenth next week. From Mutual Publishing. Visit hawaiipublicradio.org for links. And that's a wrap for today. Up tomorrow, we talk mental health. It's been a stressful year, hasn't it? I'm tired. Are you? <laughs> Give us some feedback. Got questions about the pre-travel test program or concerns about the military's Red Hill fuel tanks? Call our Talkback line. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.